What's up? Docs. It's all I've been doing. Okay. It's terrible. <laughs> it's not bad. Are you get is that the last step? Is this it for Diesel 1.0? Yeah. API docs are done. I'm working on guides right now. Okay. I'm uh working on the advanced querying guide right now. Well, actually, that's that's technically not true. Uh, I'm working on the example app, uh, which I'm going to be pointing to for code sam examples in the advanced querying guide. This isn't going to be like the getting started guide where it's like step by step we're building this app. It's more like here's an app that demonstrates a bunch of advanced queries, and the guide is more going to be like here's a bunch of advanced queries, and then just have code snippets that are like, and here's an app that uses that thing. Mm -hmm. Anyway. For the getting started guide, because I wanted it to be entirely focused on diesel and not like a CLI argument parsing framework or a uh, web framework or anything like that, it was just like, you know, the world's dumbest command line tool where like there wasn't, it, there wasn't even CLI, everything was just a separate binary. Mm -hmm. For the advanced querying guide, I'm just doubling down on my CLI blog, only this time it is an actual CLI and it opens your text editor to publish posts and it's multi-tenanted, has commenting functionality, pagination. You do it all from the command line. <laughs> from the command line, yes. Locally, and yes. and there, there's authentication logic, which you know makes a ton of sense in an application where the client requires a direct database connection. <laughs> <laughs> Good times. It's, yeah, no, it's, uh, I'm more just like, I needed to write some code to not go insane. And mm -hmm. so... You know, I'm sort of off for the holidays, so I've been spending the morning building this absolutely silly uh, CLI. That's how you spend your off for the morning. That's how you spend your vacation. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. It's it's funny. I haven't, like, actually just started a, a, a greenfield project using diesel in a while. Not that this is, like, a super, you know, involved project or anything like that, but mm -hmm. just... The workflow of using it has changed significantly since the last time I actually like sat down and just started building even just a shitty demo app from scratch. And it's just like, I really like the workflow we landed on. Nice. All right. Was that enough? Can we talk about Star Wars now or? Oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't know you want to talk about Star Wars. Let's talk about Star Wars. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, no. Sorry no. for holding up the Star Wars talk. <laughs> no, we can't talk about Star Wars now. We have to do it at the end of the show. But uh, we're going to do that thing again, right? You saw it, obviously. Yes? Yeah. Okay. I, I also saw it. Saw it. All right, so at the end of the show, we're going to talk about Star Wars, and we're going to spoil it, so you should, uh, you know, we'll give you ample warning all the way at the end. Well, after the theme music, the whole thing. Um, do you want to talk about that white paper you sent me? Uh, we can. I actually have a bunch of doc stuff to talk about, too. Okay, go ahead, if that's what you want to do. We're already talking about docs, so why don't we continue <laughs> talking about docs? I had two main goals before Diesel 1.0, or I guess really three, but two of them were more easily measurable the two that that were just like very specifically i know when i've achieved those goals is review everything in our api docs that's been written already to make sure that the out-of-date stuff gets fixed mm -hmm. uh and then as part of doing that document all the undocumented stuff so that we can put deny missing docs at the top of the library and that happened yesterday deny missing docs means the thing will not build if you don't have documentation on public methods or something yeah so public like functions. deny means uh this lint if it ever happens, fail the build. And then there's a lint called missing docs, which is allow by default, so it doesn't even warn. And so if you put deny missing docs, it says, yeah, if there's any publicly reachable from the outside item that hasn't that doesn't have documentation, fail the build. Nice. I don't really like lints like that because they tend to encourage docs that don't document anything. Yes. And there are a ton of places where, like, you know, it's a module called SQL types and the docs for it, the, the module docs are like, this is the module where SQL types live. Right. But unfortunately, there's no way for me to say like, 
it's it's not as big a deal if it were a single function where I feel the function name is self-explanatory. Of course, a function it needs to have usage examples, so this never applied there. But basically, the, the main place that I usually wanted to skip them was on a bunch of module documentation. And module in this case in this case in Rust would be like equivalent to just if you're documenting the purpose of a file in Ruby. Right. But the problem is if I say allow missing docs on that module, there's no way for me to just say allow missing documentation on the module itself, but require documentation for everything inside the module. Because, mm-hmm. you know, like these these lint annotations are sort of lexically scoped. So if I say allow missing docs on the module, that also allows missing docs on everything inside the module. I would say that even on the things inside the module, there are times when you don't need more documentation than particularly in a strongly typed language than like here's the name of the thing and here are the types it takes and here's the type it returns no types are not documentation no but there's a lot of times where it's like okay i'm trying to think of an example where like it's pretty clear what it does the only things i've ever felt could go without docs were types themselves okay so i'm thinking like of rails things that i've documented for doing gems like adder accessors Right? It's like, this is the attribute that stores the name. (laughs) It's a string. Sure. Cool. Um, I guess there's a bit of a difference there between the sort of things that would tend to live on, like, a a domain model versus the sort of things that tend to live on... um, In library code? In library code, yeah. Although, it's actually funny. I'm trying to think of any case... I guess it's always in traits. So, actually, yeah. So, so all the things that I felt could go without docs are sort of equivalent to this. So like there's never public fields on structs and diesel, just never. And it's very rare for us to even provide accessor methods because typically ev- everything that lives on a struct is internal to the struct itself. Mm-hmm. There are cases where we expose things that are accessed like more generically and those ways do through traits. So like an example is I have a trait called query source. And a query source basically represents something that has a from clause and then also uh, has a default select clause. And so because of the way I've declared this, right, so it's a trait. So first of all, I have to say type from clause, like what is the type of, of the from clause? And so the documentation for type from clause is the type returned by from clause. <laughs> right. And then, uh, and I actually have like a one sentence thing to say about the from clause method. Uh, so the docs for that one are the actual from clause of this type. This is typically only called in query fragment implementations. So my, you know, in that case, I'm I'm mentioning like, yeah, no, you probably don't need to call this. But all of those cases are are typically stuff where it's internal. Like we wouldn't have fields that are public to to users on any of our stuff because like you don't need to know how we internally represent an insert statement. Right. But you're right, like adder accessors are probably one of those cases of just like, yeah, if your adder accessor isn't named in a way that documents what it is. Right. So I was thinking, I was specifically thinking about the configuration for like gems, right? So like they are just a bag of attributes that you write for the most part in Ruby gems. And some of them like Boolean ones, I tend to have more to say because I'm like this, this controls this type, this specifically this type of behavior, whether or not it's on or off. But like. Give me the SMTP host for emails or something, you know, like something like that. Well, Um, configuration options, I feel like it's easier to have more to say because those are adder accessors where you can very easily come up with a usage example. Like here's an example of how behavior changes based on this this configuration option. Yeah. And some of them do have interesting things like that and some of them just don't. Uh, One of the things that I've really liked about Rust for this is is I've sort of felt encouraged because like this is partially just because I poorly structured the, the integration tests to begin with. But like there's a file in our integration test. It's tests filter. So it basically, you know, tests all of the different ways you can call filter. And so then when I add dot and 
which is not like anything to do with filter per se, but it you know it would only make sense to pass the result of dot and filter, right? That just ends up going in this place. Uh, and then if there's like five edge cases for and, then those all just end up in this one file. And I could end up with you know 80 billion test files, but that just feels funky since and isn't even important enough or long enough in our code base to get its own file. But in Rust, any uh, code examples that you have are executed as part of your test suite by default. I mean, I, I still want to have the separate test suite for there's a, you know, here's the happy path, and then there's 25 edge cases that I don't want to muddy our documentation with. But like if every difference in behavior in some method is something that the user, you know, it, it's worth mentioning in your documentation, bam, your tests are just organized automatically for you because you, you get rid of your explicit tests for that method and all of the tests just live in your documentation. Mm -hmm. You know, of course, the intention here is not so much for my benefit, it's for users' benefit of knowing that, that, that examples and documentation are actually up to date. But when I just have a bunch of things that I don't have an easy, obvious place to put, te to put tests for, it's, it's, helped, it's helped with that organization quite a bit. And I've just been like deleting tests as I move them into documentation, which is good. Nice. Yeah, it, it got really monotonous for a while of just like, yeah, I made a list. Okay, here are all of the modules in Diesel. And I, I put up cards. We have a GitHub project for this. And I put up cards for each of these. Like, hey, this module has yet to have been reviewed. Uh, and so I created a card for uh, every module, two cards, one to review the existing docs and one to um, add deny missing docs to that module. Presumably, you know, doing the review existing docs before the deny missing docs one, since reviewing existing docs is harder if it's done after a bunch more docs get added. Right. And I was really hoping more people would jump in to help with this, but but it <laughs> really didn't happen. Uh, no, it, well, and it sucks too because I'm not the right person to document this because I'm going to write docs from my point of view, which is going to like I don't know what when somebody first comes to the library, what they're looking for that isn't there, or where they're looking for it, or where things fall short of explaining uh, them effectively. Right. Well, that's why this is a, a skill. That's why like writing technical documentation is a skill because even a person who professionally does that, they themselves aren't necessarily like the users of the documentation. They don't know. They, they just develop an intuition about the types of things. And then like for version one, they go on that intuition for version 1.1 or 2.0 or whatever. They start honing it based on the questions they're seeing from people. And I think that's what you'll end up doing as well. Like, cause it doesn't matter whoever writes it, everybody has their own view on things. Right. And so like, sure. if you had somebody who like had never used an ORM before try and write the documentation, it would come out differently than somebody who's coming to this from rails versus somebody who's implementing this, that kind of thing. Right. Yeah, that's true. Um, I mean, I just remember, you know, hearing the story of like when Steve was documenting the rust standard library and a lot of it was just like going in, trying to figure out how things work, trying to use them, and then asking a ton of questions to the people who actually wrote it. And yeah. then basically documenting the, those answers. Yeah, and that's how like when I've worked with actual like technical writers before, and I worked at Akamai, we had a technical writer on the team who wrote like a manual for using the product, and then also a um, like just would do a lot of the language within the app itself, like the explanatory stuff mm -hmm. where it was needed. Um, and that's how he would work is like he would try and do something and then ask us a bunch of questions. But oftentimes, like a lot of us on the team ended up having conflicts with him because it was just like, no, like the 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 <laughs> the angle you're coming to this from is not right. Or like there's already a word for this that is used throughout the rest of Akamai. And this is the word, and you're trying to reinvent a new word for it because you think it's a better word. Or like we would just have, you know, these these arguments of like just because he's the professional, like maybe he just wasn't 
that great at what he was doing. But <laughs> that what that last one came up though a bit in Diesel's docs though. Like I, I actually would wonder if that's a sign that maybe the word isn't presented in the right place. Because like one of the ones that I've struggled with, can I use this as much as I have been? Where's the right place to actually introduce it? Is the term bind parameter, right? Because that's not an actual standard term. Like that's not like if you go look through. My SQLs docs, they will not use the term bind parameter. I think they usually refer to it as a placeholder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, like, I've always I always refer to it as a bind parameter. Bind parameter usually means either the actual placeholder that appears in the SQL or the value that's get that's getting sent. And usually, you can infer it from the context. And in any place where it's ambiguous, I I usually tend to specify bind parameter value. But it's like that's not standard terminology. There is no standard terminology to refer to this. And like. Where is the right place to define what this thing is? Yep. Yeah, I think there's like, I'm trying to remember where I even put it. Because I feel like there was one place where I felt, somebody was like, do we even need to say this? I'm trying to think where I put it. It was like I put uh, a bind parameter is a value sent separately from the query itself. Yeah. I think it's. I think that is confusing if you're not familiar with bind parameters and why bind parameters would be more valuable than just like putting the... Like it, it, that almost asks more questions than it answers. Like if you don't, if you're not familiar with bind parameters, like why, why wouldn't you send the value with the query? I don't understand, right? And because then it requires you to introduce this idea of a prepared statement. Right. Whereas yeah. like a placeholder is a little more like, oh, it's like a placeholder. This is a string, and then you have like these things that you interpolate into the string, but the rest of the string is rather static. So like placeholder, well, but you, but you're familiar. not interpolating it, right? I mean, no, placeholder but, also only exists with a prepared statement. Right, but it's easier to draw that correlation to a string with placeholders in it, right? Because to somebody just using this library, that's a good enough abstraction, right? Like, sure, you don't necessarily need to know how prepared statements work, and when you execute them again, you just execute that prepared statement by ID and pass new bind parameters or whatever. Yeah, and I say so. I say the term sent separately in four places in our docs. Three of those places, it definitely makes sense because this is in the documentation for our query builder itself which means that you're likely extending our query builder. And these are on methods that you probably won't even call directly. But uh, these are the things that actually involve gathering the values to be sent separately. So it definitely makes sense to mention it there. Mm-hmm. And then the, the last one is in a trait that like nobody ever interacts with directly, but they implicitly act interact with it all the time. It's called as expression. And it's like if you do foo.eq something, whatever the right-hand side is, the bound isn't, uh, is this thing a diesel expression of the right SQL type? It's does this thing implement as expression for the right SQL type? And that's what lets us take an existing like column with the right type or a random rust value that gets converted to a bind parameter. Uh, and so in the documentation for that trait itself, I mentioned that the implementation does one of three things. And the third one is indicate that the type has data which will be sent separately from the query. This is generally referred to as a bind parameter. Types which implement to SQL will generally implement as expression this way. All right. <laughs> Which, like, I don't know, maybe that is too dense. I mean, there's also something to be said for, like, layers of documentation, right? Like, as I was thinking, you were, we were thinking when you were saying, like, I'm not the right person to document this. In many ways, that's what the different parts of documentation represent, right? Is like, so you have guides, which may be a little bit more approachable as, like, yeah. a thing you would just read and understand. And, like, those have an audience of, like, okay, I expect the person reading this guide, like, the advanced querying one you probably have some expectations on who's reading that guide versus the like getting started guide a little different, right? And whereas technical documentation, maybe you're correct to just like be technically as 100% correct in what you're documenting as possible. Because actually what I what I found myself 
is that when people ask me questions, it's me that consults my own documentation. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So it actually right. is written at least 50% of the time for me. I'm like, actually, yeah, I documented this and here's a link to the documentation. <laughs> and it's me going through that. And like, I found that by like reading through some other documentation that I had linked and like, I don't know, maybe the people using my libraries are reading the documentation, but uh, I don't think as much, particularly in Ruby where it's just, I don't, I mean, half the people don't even know what documentation is. Uh, <laughs> right <laughs> or where you would where you would find it so. um yeah there was a thor mm -hmm. there was a adder accessor that like uh lisa who who uh, works with me at shopify and i were trying to um figure out what it does or what its potential values are because it very clearly like had a very small set of values but we couldn't find that documented anywhere and we found the where the method itself was defined. It was just an adder accessor, and it was the auto-generated uh, yard documentation, like accessor for the instance variable with the same name, which just like didn't. It was like it was like called mode, I think. Mm -hmm. And the actual values. So this is okay, right? The adder accessor really could have used the documentation. The return value of this will either be generate, revert, dry run, or something or other. It's like five different states, but like it's all very specific values, and there's one or two that are most important. But yeah, no, I mean, I get, I get what you mean about layers of documentation. I've definitely found myself using different wording depending on the thing that I'm documenting. One of the things that I've found, I don't know, slightly difficult, because I want to have probably more layers of documentation than most people do. So I want to have, basically, a lot more of Diesel is public API than, say, Rails. Um, I've made most of our internals public API. Mm -hmm. The only things that aren't public API are the things that I can reasonably abstract away and hide behind other things. So like a select statement is not public API because you never construct select statement directly. Select statement is always the result of calling the filter method on this table with these arguments. So uh, the only way to reference it in public API is we have a little helper type called filter and it's just filter left hand side, right hand side. But like insert statement, you do need to, you don't actually need to know about its representation, but you do need to know that the type exists because there are methods on insert statement that are only on insert statement. But anyway, so like I want to, I, I kind of want to have four layers, people who are new to diesel, mm -hmm. people who are, uh, or even just, yeah, I guess average user would be the top layer. And then people who are not looking to care too much about like the technical stuff, but want to know a little bit more about how diesel works, people who are writing plugins. Mm -hmm. And then contributors. Okay. And so contributor docs are, you know, don't don't get rendered. So like um, probably the single most extensively documented piece of diesel is our prepared statement cache. Mm -hmm. uh, because I spent like a couple hours writing six or seven hundred lines of docs on exactly how prepared statement caching works, why it works the way it does, what does or doesn't get cached, what should or shouldn't go in what places. I think six or seven hundred is a bit of a, a bit of an exaggeration. Uh, but <laughs> Hold on, let me see how many lines it is. Okay, it's 100 lines, but it's 100 lines with no code examples. Mm -hmm. So it's, actually, it's 100 lines of actual text. Prose. Anyway, I think that's probably the most like non-code example docs of anything, but those don't get rendered because the exact details of how prepared statement caching works internally is not something that even plugin authors need to care about. Right. They do need to care about a few places where they communicate with us whether or not something is safe to be stored and how we should store it. But anyway, so the, but the, the thing that's become difficult is like, how do I separate things? Because the API documentation, you know, you want it's API documentation. You want it structured in the way you access it through code. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to. And I don't want to have like you know Diesel actually programmatically separate into the buckets of I'm a user, I'm curious, and I'm a, and I'm writing a plugin. 
And so I haven't really like separated out the I'm curious other than a lot of traits. I'll say most apps shouldn't need to concern themselves with this trait. I'll sometimes put that at the top of uh, documentation for things. But um, the way I've tried to solve it was like two or three days ago, I rewrote documentation for the root module. So like if you just go to docs.diesel.rs, now this is the thing that is rendered at the top of the page, just below the search bar. And uh, so I tried to put out where to find things. And so I organized it like, uh, in sort of the order that you, if you want to know, cause I figure if you're here, you've gone through the getting started guide. And actually the first thing I say is, uh, if this is your first time reading this, you should read the getting started guide first. Mm-hmm. And so then I'm assuming you're, you're going from there and now you're at the API doc. So you either want to look for something specific or you want to now generally get a more complete picture of how diesel works. I tried to structure the where to find things as like the, here's sort of the order of, of like, Things that have to happen before other things. The first thing I have is declaring your schema, where I mentioned, here's the table macro. It's very important. It does all of the things. Uh, you never uh, usually don't invoke this macro directly. You either call, uh, use diesel print schema from the command line or the infer schema macro. Uh, neither of those are links right now because the docs for infer schema aren't rendering, and diesel print schema is a CLI command, and I don't know how to, you know... <laughs> Do that. Diesel print schema hyphen hyphen help is the documentation, but I can't really link to that. (laughs) Anyway, so I've got getting started. So like if you're trying to build a non-select query, you call a function like update. All of those functions are here. Right. Uh, Constructing a query here where, you know, here's where the methods that you call on queries are. Here's where the methods that you call on like columns are. Here's where the functions that are just actual functions are. Serializing, deserializing, getting help. Yep. So I tried to point people out like, here are the things that are important for you to know because... You know, otherwise the docs are just sort of a jumbled bag of stuff. Yeah, and I, I thinking about like RubyDoc, when you go and look at them like rendered on RubyDoc.info or whatever, and you land on a page that's just like, I think it by default it renders the README as like the first page or something. Mm-hmm. And so you see the README and it's like, okay. And then there's a bunch of stuff on the left that's like modules, classes, methods. And you're like, uh, what am I looking for? I don't like, yep. there's no... And the readme isn't written specifically to be doc. It's written as like an intro, but it's not specifically written as an intro to the documentation. Right. right? You can get there. And I, like once I realized that was happening, like I tried a little bit to do some of that. But like in the Ruby community, there's diminishing returns on how much you're going to spend on like what your rendered docs look like because sure people don't necessarily read them. But oftentimes I find myself like, okay, uh, like I know this library does X, so let me just use the search box over here and I'll type it in. And then I'm like, oh, wait, I'm in classes. I guess I'm probably just looking for a method that does this. And then I click method and then I click, like, it's just not, it's just, ugh. it's not a community yeah. that prioritizes this type of stuff. So, well, so, so here's one. Uh, and this is actually, it's funny in rails, you could actually probably get away with doing the way it works in rust. So just go to api.rubyonrails.org. Mm-hmm. And just pretend like you're new to Rails and like you just read like some very brief guide and you now kind of want to like, all right, I want to understand a little bit more uh, in depth how active record works. So go to api.rubyonrails.org, just click active record. Active record. There's a lot of actives. Uh, oh, boy. <laughs> the list you know, of so all the included files. Two thirds of the way down the it's page. It's well more than two thirds. No, no, to get past the list of files, because yep. the last third, it's just a list of modules. <laughs> right. And then there's two public there's methods, two... gem version and version. <laughs> You're like, oh, okay, it gives me a gem version and a version. Cool. Fantastic. I love that point gets rendered on here. Point. Oh, yeah. Struct new XY. <laughs> what would active record need for point? Uh, it's what we deserialize from the Postgres point type. 
Right. And then just certain constants, like I know there are more errors that active record returns, but for whatever reason, unknown attribute error is right there. Right. I don't I don't know why. Like what makes that so important to be on this level of documentation and the other one's not or and migration proxy and you're like, What yeah, if you were just trying to be like what's well, that one's all about? that one that one's an actual constant assignment. The mm-hmm. rest of them are classes. Uh, okay, yes, yes, I see it. But this is one thing that I do like about Rust, right, is that the thing that is rendered by default in documentation is the documentation for your crate. So it's the it's your source lib file, the the docs for that file. Yeah. Which is not your readme. Your readme is what you write now. That's what gets rendered on GitHub and on crates.io. Right. And I like that distinction a lot more. I would put more effort into the top level documentation if that were the case. Yeah. I don't know. It's a tough problem. And it's just like it sucked because... It's not only that I'm having to write a bunch of docs, it's that, A, in order to try and encourage people to come help with documentation and also to make sure that I remain focused on documentation so I meet my deadline of getting this out by the end of the year, you know, I've declared a full feature freeze on diesel. Mm-hmm. So, like, unless your pull request addresses a critical bug, it will not be reviewed until January. Unless it's documentation. Are you writing that in the, uh, in like, when people open PRs, be like, this looks like a really interesting feature if you'd like me to merge it. We need documentation on all these other things first. <laughs> Basically. Luckily, people have actually been good about asking, like, hey, I kind of want to work on this feature. Do you think it would be merged? <laughs> be like, that sounds like a great feature. Talk to me in January. Right. I, need, I need help with docs. Please come help with docs. <laughs> and everybody's um, like, nah, I'm, I'm good with that. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, and that's whatever. But it also just means, like, two weeks ago, I had some ideas for some features that are going to make people a bunch of people's lives way easier and gonna make my life way easier too, and I'm really excited about it, and I can't work on it. Well, ship your code. Be done. Then you can work on it. Right. Finish the documentation. Yeah. <laughs> but just it just sucks because it's a lot it's a lot of work in it, and I can't work on the things that I want to work on until this is done. And this isn't like, you know, for a couple of days. This has been for two months. Yeah. I mean, I, I just remember going through clearance and I never even got to the point. Where I was like, I'm gonna document everything in clearance. All the pub, all the stuff I consider public, I'm going to document it. Mm-hmm. And then, so I started doing that, and I, I don't think I ever finished. But it was like I mentioned before, it was it ended up being so good for me because like I don't do enough of clearance to remember exactly how things are all wired together all the time. But having now having that documentation that hints to me like, oh, okay, this is what this is where you go. Um, but at one point, I was submitting PRs along the way to be like, here's some documentation on this class, here's some documentation on that class, that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. somebody was like, we used to have documentation. What happened? And then I looked through the history and it was just all removed in one commit. <laughs> Did the commit say why? I forget. If I can find the commit, I'll link to it in the show notes. But I think it was just like, it was so inconsistently documented that it was like, ah. oh, let's just not have any documentation. And also probably under the misguided, like, oh, the code is explanatory. Like, why do we need the documentation? I don't know. Maybe. That's right. not, I'm just I'm just guessing. But um scenic is fully documented as far as i'm concerned anyway and then clearance has some but i get like prs that are like you 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 did a typo here and they fix it and i love those prs because it's like yep that's a that's an easy win you were correct that was a typo <laughs> yes well those are nice as long as uh, the, the issue with rails is that we'll get people since we have the you know the scoreboard we'll get people who will find a typo and you know they found 20 typos all at once, or they're just spending a ton of time just searching for typos mm-hmm. until they'll open 20 PRs, added a missing comma here, added a missing comma here, right. fixed an ambiguous spelling here. Right. It's like, 
if you're gonna spend an hour looking for typos, can I, can we just have the one PR? Where it's like I found an hour's worth of typos. Here you go. <laughs> no, they want the thirty commits. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think the thing that just kind of sucks about all of this was that you know we sort of knew that our documentation wasn't great because there was a bunch of stuff that was undocumented or diff or the biggest issue was that things were difficult to find and it was like we had the getting started guide and that was the only guide we had for a very long time and it didn't you know it it scratched the surface doesn't go very deep and then the api docs were not there was not a lot to bridge you from like you've just finished reading the getting started guide to how do i build this exact query anyway so we kind of always knew they were they were a little bad and so Complaints started to pile up more and more until eventually just kind of reached a critical mass of, okay, clearly at this point, our main blocker is no longer a lack of features that people need. It is a lack of documentation. Because uh, that was part of why the docs didn't improve for so long was just, why aren't you using this? Well, I can't build the queries I need with it. But anyway, that critical mass eventually changed and uh, shifted over. And so it's like, I've spent a ton of time on this. All of my time basically outside of work that I, that I did not have family responsibilities has been spent reading and writing docs for diesel for well over a month. And it's like, I now know, you know, I know for sure that barring any like random things that I ha I, I accidentally skipped over. I know now that at least everything in our documentation is factually correct and documented, but like, I can't really answer the question then of are our docs good? Yeah, you won't be able to answer it until people come to you with questions that either you can't answer in existing documentation or they say, I read the existing documentation and it doesn't make sense to me, right? Yeah, but then it also sucks that nobody's going to be able, like, nobody's going to come and be like, yo, your docs were really good and I found exactly what I needed. No, but uh, I'm never going to get a, I'm never going to get an affirmative confirmation of like, and the work is actually done. No, because it's never done. You're constantly well, going to be like, <laughs> you know what I mean, though, like of, of the docs that are of a quality for basically I want to ship 1.0 with good docs. Right. You know, of course, of course, the work of improving them never ends. But like, are they good now? I, I, I'm never going to be able to get an affirmative answer of, yes, the docs are good enough to ship 1.0 or not. And that sucks. Particularly if you don't have like a mass of users. Like, I feel like Ember went through this big push of like doing documentation. Right. And they had way more users than you have sure. at, that, at that point. And so I think it was easier for them to get feedback because, like, there's always somebody starting and they can just ask, like, how did you find this getting started guide? How did you find the function documentation when you needed to look into that? That kind of thing. But I suspect that it's a lot of the same, too. Like, they knew they were done when they felt like everything had documentation. Whether or not it was good documentation, I don't know. It was better than no documentation uh, yeah. or what, or the little documentation that existed before. And so we'll go from there. Like. You know, yeah, but you only, get, you, you only get shipped 1.0 once, right? And if our docs still suck and drive users away, like... Nah, I don't know. I mean, maybe I'm just used to not having docs, so, like, it never... It doesn't drive me away. <laughs> I guess. I don't know. We saw a huge... When I released 1.0 beta 1, we saw a huge spike in downloads, and I'm assuming we're going to see an even huger spike in downloads when we release 1.0 final, especially since I'm going to try and get it on the front page of Hacker News. Yeah, go for it. I mean, one thing you could do is, like not the MySQL documentation way where you can just like add comments to the MySQL docs. <laughs> I don't know if you can still do that, but that used to be a thing. You'd be browsing you the can. MySQL docs and it'd be like, hey, you yeah, want to no, add a comment here? But you could have like a, um, and you couldn't do this in like the automatically rendered part probably, but in some sort of presented view of your documentation, you could have a form that's like, are there questions about this that are not answered by the document, by the documentation? Or like, just like when you go to like a major company's knowledge base article at the bottom, it'll be like, how do you rate this knowledge base entry? five one star or five stars or thumbs up right. or thumbs down or that kind of thing and you get a little more that gives people at least an opportunity to be like yeah hey this answered my question great 
And then you get a right. little positive feedback mixed in with your like, well, this didn't because sometimes people will say like this doc, I read this documentation, it didn't make sense. And I look at it. And I have somebody else look at it. And it's like, well, it seems like, you know, you just weren't at a level where this documentation under makes sense. And for me to try and get you there in this documentation is unreasonable or create unwieldy documentation that like other like that I think the most people looking here won't be ready for. So you're right. not always going to be able to answer everybody's question at the well, that, and that's when that, that comes up so, a, a good bit. Like a common one is people not necessarily understanding that if your thing is nullable in SQL, it needs to be an option in Rust. Yeah. Hmm. So we have on every single type, uh, SQL type that is, we have a section. Here are the here are the things you can serialize this to, and here are the things that you can deserialize from it. Mm -hmm. And so people are like, yeah, I have this thing, and I tried to to use this type, and it says that like from SQL nullable integer is not implemented for i32. And it's like, number one, I'm not sure that even if I say in every single one of these documentation, like I put on this documentation for every single SQL type in the library, if this thing is nullable, it has to be an option. Right. That's a thing that should get stated once in the relevant places. I bring it up in the getting started guide even. And that's just one of those like concepts that I could repeat it. I would have to repeat it in so many places because it is so universal. Right. If you were ready for it, then the first time you read it was enough. Or you probably wouldn't need to read it because it seems clear, right? Uh, if mm -hmm. you're not ready for it, no matter how many times you write it, it's not going to make sense. <laughs> or, it's, or they're just going to go over somebody's head or they're going to gloss through it and be like, yeah, 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 okay. Well, and to me too, and maybe again, this is maybe why I'm not the right person for this because I could just be wrong here. But like to me, when they show me that error message, I'm also just like, that error message seems really obvious to me when you consider the fact that there's no null in Rust. Right. So what do you expect me to do? Right. What do you expect me to do with this? Anyway, I'll stop ranting about documentation now, though. Okay. <laughs> it's hard. Please come help me. All right. Gitter.im slash diesel hyphen rs slash diesel. By the time they hear this, they'll have like, uh, you know, a few days to get this uh, documentation out or something. All right, I don't even know if this episode's going to come out next week. I forget. I mean, the I'm docs like, are already vacation. up. All right. So, yeah. I've seen write the guides. Go check but out still, the Still, come tell me if the docs are good. Yeah, read, read through them. Particularly if you have like an interest in Rust. If you don't know anything about Rust, maybe reading through the Rust documentation, I don't know. <laughs> Getting started guide is t is targeted at people who just finished the Rust book. So okay, go read the Rust book first, and then go read the Getting Started docs. And also, if you're a Ruby developer, I know obviously we get a lot of those, and you have the library. Maybe put a little documentation in, or not, because who knows who's going to read it? I don't know. It'll be good for you though. I promise. It will. Uh, <laughs> and then go see Star Wars afterwards. Yeah. So yeah, let's do that after we do this intro. We're going to talk about Star Wars, where we will likely spoil Star Wars. So if you don't care to hear about us, hear us talk about Star Wars or the, you haven't seen it yet, then you can stop listening after the outro or now, you know, if you don't want to hear the outro, which is great. <laughs> Show notes can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 137. As always, ratings, reviews on iTunes are much appreciated. If you have feedback about this episode or any of our other episodes, you can tweet us at underscore bikeshed, email us at host at bikeshed.fm or leave a comment on our website. Thanks for listening to the Bike Shed and happy holidays. Star Wars? Star Wars. Let's start with general uh, thumbs up, thumbs down, two thumbs up, two thumbs down. What do you, you oh, got? I loved it. I, I loved it as well, yeah. Two like thumbs I up. Like I said, I've been, I've been just writing docs in my free time. <laughs> so, like, tests uh, was like, hey, have you heard about, like, how toxic the discourse around the new Star Wars is? I'm like, what? Yeah, I have It was completely either. news to me when, when she said that because I've not, like, but, yeah, apparently a lot of people didn't like it which was interesting it's hard for me to believe that somebody could watch that movie and not feel entertained by it like right if you came to a star wars movie in the first couple of weeks it opened 
and you watched it and you were like, that wasn't entertaining at all. I don't understand. I don't, I don't, I don't get it at all. I, I read an article on the New York times that like looked into like, why are the, like, if you go to rotten tomatoes, or at least at the time that I read this article, I don't know if it's changed, but like the critic score was in the 90 percentile or something like that. Right. But then the like user score was like, like 50 something percent. And, well, and that's just Rotten Tomatoes, though, and not right, Critic. Right, and so the theory is like, you know, it's typical internet trolling, basically. Right. Like, there are some people that had problems with it because the impression I get is it just wasn't what they wanted it to be. Like, it didn't, it didn't service their theory on where the thing should go, so... Yeah. yeah, some of them are also, like, really crappy, too. Like, apparently some people are mad because Disney's making it too diverse, Right. And all and all all the white guys are bad dudes, which just like get over yourself. I didn't even think about that. But yeah, I don't know. I think it seemed they're not all, uh, you know, uh, Poe Dameron. He's not a bad guy. He's a little bit of he got taken down a few notches in this. Uh, sure. In this episode. And it was kind of frustrating to see how like his character was probably the most frustrating for me. It was just like, I don't understand. And also, like when you zoom out at the macro level, this entire movie being based around like a 20-hour very slow hunt for somebody to run out of gas. <laughs> like, right. <laughs> it's like, okay, that's that's a little weak, but uh, but the well, actual I, action in the movie was very good. And you also got to consider, too, right, like, Ray was separated from everybody else for basically the entire movie. Mm-hmm. So unlike The Force Awakens, where, like, the story could progress for everybody most of the time, here they're basically going to be telling two different movies, which are all both paced well, but it makes everything feel slower because... They have to take twice as long for time to progress for all of the characters. Right. And it did seem the movie was like it could have ended before they got to that base. Right. Wherever that was. I forget where that was. What was the base that they all went to at the end? The planet that they all landed on, whatever it was called. Yeah. It could have ended. It could have ended before they got there or like right when they all or right when they all got there. Right. Right. When they squeezed in underneath the closing door or whatever. Well, yeah. But I mean, leaving Luke unresolved would have been weird. Yeah, I guess. I mean, you would and the, just assume. And, and the salt stuff was so cool visually. Yeah, that was pretty neat. Yeah, I don't know. I I thought it was great. I thought the parentage thing, like a lot of people have a lot of problems, I guess, with uh, the fact that if we're to believe what Kylo says that, or Ben, if you want to call him Ben, if we're to believe what he said, that Ray's parents are nobody, that that's disappointing to some people, I guess. Or right. or just like wasted the setup that they had done in The Force Awakens where they kind of led you to believe that they were somebody. Not necessarily. I love that answer personally. I like it too. Yeah. Like who is good because of herself and not and not because, you know, she was destined or because her parents were great people. Exactly. Yes. And that's what I liked about it. It was just like, who is she? She's nobody. She's just, and then they reinforce that at the very end when they have the boy who's on the, with the, broom. the casino planet and he's using the force to like do a little sweep him with the broom or whatever. I um, didn't notice that at watching the movie. I just saw <laughs> I, I saw the ring and Tess pointed out like, no, he force pulled the broom. And I'm just like, oh, well, that seems sig- very significant. Yes. And like I thought that was cool. And then when I started hearing that there were people online were upset about this movie, I, I did some research. I was like, what are they upset about? And yes, there's some toxicity there, but some people, but other people are just like, there are entire articles that are dedicated to figuring out who that boy is. And I was like, oh man, you missed the point of the whole movie. Yeah. Like, well, and, and <laughs> the point you know, is he's I nobody. Realized, <laughs> once, I, once I realized that they were showing other force users who were not in any way connected to anything besides just Ray, because I was, I was disappointed that like, we were just never going to find out about Snoke. Not so much that Snoke had to be... It's it's not so much that I care about who Snoke was. I care about why 
did we not hear about a, a another Sith Lord who was very clearly around when the Emperor and Darth Vader were around? Like, I don't, you know, it's not so much a, of a who he is, but more of a like, clearly there is something happening there. And if it, and if it could just be he's a super evil dude who happened to be a random force user right. who managed to take, you know, to, to either found or take over the First Order afterwards because there are random force users appearing like that makes a little more sense. There's plenty of times so I see a lot of people being like, oh, we're never going to know. And it's like, well, no, there's, they'll make other movies. They've shown a willingness to show, to tell backstory in movies. Sure. And if not yeah. in movies, in canon books or like whatever. I did love how they just, just you know, they built Snoke up so much and then just killed him just like that. <laughs> I loved that. That was so perfect. Right. And also just the idea of like it seemed destined towards a like, okay, well, yeah, the Force Awakens was a new hope with new characters, and this is going to be Empire Strikes Back with new characters. Like, we're headed towards a Kylo Ren as Darth Vader redemption, right? Like, he's going to... I don't know that we are, though. No, we're not. And that's what... But it seemed like we were, right? Yeah, my, my prediction was they were going to swap around, and we were going to have Rey either be, like, gray and be, no, you know, we have to be both dark and light to bring balance, or what I was thinking was just Rey was going to end up with Snoke, and then Kylo was going to end up being the good guy. I was thinking it was a possibility, and I was really hoping it wouldn't, because I was like, that's going to crush my son if Ray becomes... Well, it was also too obvious. <laughs> right. I, think, I feel like everybody was assuming that was going to happen. Right. But yeah, in general, I just thought the whole thing... And like, if you look at it and you go back to like... Okay, if you were looking at this as like, okay, is this just going to be Empire Strikes Back, where you have like, okay, Kylo Ren's trying to be Darth Vader, and then eventually he's going to do the right thing and save Ray, And then, you know, maybe he'll die, or maybe he'll just be a good guy right <laughs> right um now and if you were thinking that was going to happen like just throughout the movie they really tried to disabuse you of that notion of like right in the beginning they they like call it out uh there's like a technique for that i forget whatever there's a name for that but they call it out with him being like with snoke just being like you're a wannabe darth vader with your stupid mask right right and having him destroy the and mask. then he destroys the mask and he's like no actually and it turns out like he's not a wannabe darth vader he's much more capable terrifying or terrifying than than darth vader because when darth vader was presented with the opportunity to like do the right thing there was enough conflict in him that he was able to be turned and so like the same kind of thing happens with kylo ren where he's like going through this conflict supposedly or you think he is and then he apparently does the right thing but he does it so that no no i don't want to do it because it was the right thing i want to do it because i am now the supreme leader <laughs> right well and also you know darth vader while presumably still a more powerful character had much more self-control yes like, i guess a, a good way to think of it right is, is vader is very much lawful evil and kylo ren is definitely chaotic chaotic evil, evil yeah <laughs> but you got to think too, right? Like Vader was a leader of a military force. He was not a leader of the government where it's at, like if the First Order is trying to become the, the new Galactic Empire and actually be a force of government, Kylo Ren's in the supreme position of power for that body. And that that's like it's kind of like having Donald Trump be <laughs> yeah, yeah, actually chaotic evil. <laughs> Adam Driver is so good in that role, though. I like, just really uh, like him in general. The amount of of emotion he expressed when the Millennium Falcon shows up, and he's like, "Destroy that ship," which could be so <laughs> cheesy, but like he would be super emotional about it, and he pulled that off so well. Right. I also really liked the, the line where they're like, "They hate that ship," <laughs> when like the whole fleet goes right. after them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. No. Yeah. I I loved it. Like some of the complaints around like 
the Canto bite scene being uh, a little like awkwardly paced and not necessarily amounting to anything in terms of the main story maybe are, are, are valid. But when you get to the end of the movie, it, it, it the theme of it makes so much sense. Right. The fact that they tie it back in with that kid with the force, the broom, is that what you mean? Like, and he's got the ring. The, the, and... Tying it back in there, but also like bringing in the, I guess for lack of a better term, class wars aspect of it. Mm, okay. Yeah. You know, when they're yeah. learning about like these are where the rich and powerful that only stand to benefit from the continued war that right. are fu- they're not and they're not necessarily evil because they're also the ones funding the rebellion. Right. I thought that was really right. good too when they're like also oh look he also sells X wings to the rebellion. Right. You know, like I thought oh, that was okay. more the thematically important part of that of that right. that scene and that that made sense to me. But I definitely the pacing was weird. I liked that character too. I thought it was really good. Yes. Yeah. I don't know the whole thing. I just really really enjoyed it. My son really liked it. He's seven. And this was the first time we took him to see, he saw Rogue One in the theater as well, but the first like mainline story film that he saw in the theater. And he was like, I'm never missing another Star Wars movie in the theater. He thought it was awesome. I asked him to rank his Star Wars movies and it, uh, Last Jedi was number one. And that may be some recency bias there, but that was number one. It went Last Jedi, The Force Awakens. Okay. And then Return of the Jedi. You like the Ewoks? Yeah. A New Hope. Wow. Okay. Then Rogue One. Okay. Then the Empire Strikes Back, and then the prequels huh. or whatever. And uh, he, he, I think he got the prequel order right. He, he said Clone Wars and then Revenge of the Sith. I could go either way on those. And then he was very clearly like, that first movie was garbage. <laughs> I, I mean, Revenge of the Sith was the only passable one, I think. I actually almost think that uh, Clone Wars was potentially worse than uh, oh, no. than uh, the first one. Because I didn't, care, I didn't care so much about the pod racing, but the absolutely abysmally bad love story in that film just was not... Yeah. I mean, they all pretty much have bad, lo- like, you know, the love story developing in Empire Strikes Back. Sure. It's not, like, it's all kind didn't, of cheesy. It, but it didn't have, where I come from, it is, is Sandy, you are not Sandy, and that's why I love you. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I mean, for the memes, was was one of the greatest lines. But, uh, <laughs> I don't know, I, I mean, definitely, I think The Last Jedi is either second or first for me. It's hard for me to say, again, recency bias being tough and also like not sure. knowing where it's going at, like knowing that there's more to be told and not knowing what parts of this movie are going to like propel the next part. You know what I mean? Like you don't always right. know. Like after Force Awakens, it was like, oh, Ray's parentage is going to like really propel the next part of the story. And it was like, actually, kind of, but not really. And it's it also remains to be seen. I, I that, mean, like, it did propel it, actually. Though, I guess. Right? Yeah. And also like not in the way that you would have thought, but also like sure. it, there's a chance that he's lying, right? There is. At least a 20%, 25% chance that he's like just making that up and her parents are actually somebody. I mean, I think that's part of why a lot of people didn't like it, right? Is So nerd movies in general, we have this whole culture of spending way too much time trying to predict what's going to happen next. Right. And like I'm, pr- I'm pretty good at it too in a lot of these franchises. I didn't get a single thing right about this movie and I loved it. But I, <laughs> I, I would guess that that causes a visceral reaction for some people. Like this right. is not at all what I expected to happen. And I spent... I spent weeks on forums calculating my very specific theory. They wasted all this setup that they were doing and like, or that you thought they were doing. Maybe they actually were doing and they just decided like, no, we're going to go in a different direction. And that's fine. It's right. like the expression of like not being afraid, afraid to kill your babies. Right. So like your babies being like the parts of the story that you really like have a personal attachment to and being like, no, right. we're not going to do that. Or we're not going to service this area of the plot because guess what? Our movie's already two and a half hours long. 
But I mean, like uh, with the Ray's parents in particular, since we have the hard cutoff in a, in a minute, uh, like just to pick a specific example, right? I think the fact that they did all that build up and then turned it into no, but they're actually nobody and made it clear that she probably kind of knew that the whole time and was just deluding herself. Like that, ha- that was such a big payoff, in my opinion. Yeah. It meant even more for a character than if it turned out like, oh, and she's a Kenobi. <laughs> right. For her character, not for like random mythos origin stories that people want to tell. Right. But for her character, I thought that had the biggest payoff it possibly right. could. And also just the idea of the general universe of like, no, the force self balances, right? And it's like, right. it uses random people. It doesn't explain why everybody else we already know about comes from something, but like, you know, anyway. Well, midichlorians, I mean, obviously. Midichlorians, right. <laughs> Let's end on cool. that because we got a car, yeah. we got a hard cutoff now. All right. All right. Talk to you later. Talk to you later. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, Raleigh, and Washington, D.C., let's build something great together.